let me say this. I'm not an advocate of bureaucracy. I'm a realist about bureaucracy because it is. Every organization, and we talked about this in our last discussion, is essentially designed as some form of bureaucracy, whether it's local government, business community organizations, all of them, faith community, non-NGOs, nonprofits. So for me, the question isn't about being an advocate. The question is recognizing it and trying to make sure that it performs in the best possible way so that you harvest the strengths of that structure without letting it strangle the results that you're trying to achieve. So that brings me to my second thought, is that given that every form of design has strengths and weaknesses, I think what Weber was probably saying was, if you over-bureaucratize an organization, you're strangling its ability to grow and do what it needs to do to create results. Today, I meet with Ray Patchett for part two of our conversation about organization teams and performance. In addition to exploring key traits of successful teams, we cover transitions, mental health, polarization, and managing conflict. To begin, I revisit where we ended when we last spoke. We were talking about bureaucracies and the tension between reliable bureaucratic structures and a more human-centered organization. And I wonder if we could play with this a little bit. I recall the work of German sociologist Max Weber, or Max Weber, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. In 1946, in his essay on bureaucracy, he says, in essence, that when perfectly developed, bureaucracy eliminates from official business any love, hatred, or purely personal, irrational elements. This is its virtue which contrasts with values around growth and development. We protect what we know. We silo. We say, don't disturb us here. We know what we are doing. It seems the element of efficiency, if overdone, threatens human-centered thinking with this sort of soulless system of rules and procedures. So all that said, we might start with the limits of bureaucracy in public administration and continue on with a steady gaze on the need to balance our aims. So let's go back to what Ray was saying. And so when I think about organizations, and this is in my notion, this guy named Dick Beckhard, who was one of the fathers of OD, he said that organizations exist in a quasi-stationary equilibrium. And that is they kind of hover at a level of performance and that part of our role, and I would, I would say as city managers and even OD and consultants and what have you, is to facilitate the involvement of that equilibrium to levels that are greater in performance. And so any strength of a design, it becomes a weakness if it's overdone. If the bureaucracy becomes too rigid, then you can't perform. So the question, it's managing a set of opposites, right? Current reality plus the desired future state. We exist as a bureaucracy, as an organization in there somewhere. And what we're trying to do is move it along in terms of its development and growth 
so that it can perform at even higher levels. So those are my initial thoughts. I don't know what that. I'm glad I asked you that. <laughs> Great response. So when I interview teams, oftentimes when I'm querying them about their values, and I would say what comes to the top is that we do things right. And I understand that being right is important, but it's not the entire picture sometimes. But there is this value around getting it right, being not at necessarily expert, but it's the integrity piece. And so I think sometimes we confuse in our management approach, the sense of my job is to make sure we do things right and in accordance with integrity, because we don't want to be disrupted by politicians or strong stakeholders who say we should do things another way. So we have to hold fast to this. And this is honorable, this is noble, and yet it sometimes holds us back from examining other perspectives. And I think in the OD realm, we are exploring other perspectives. We're trying to find those ways to look at a situation from alternative perspectives and ask ourselves whether we want to continue to do things the way we have done them for decades. Hey, that's the way we do it here. That's very good. Okay. So that's a good one, but I have good news for you. Yeah. You're 100% right in what you can believe is right. And so am I. Yeah. So if we're both 100% right, who's right? Back to my trick question. Yeah. We both are because it's my perception. We draw a perspective on a situation based on the values we're looking through to assess that situation. And we all hold different values and beliefs that guide our view and perceptions of a single reality. So my right may be, but it may be wrong. So the question for me in terms of dealing with perceptions, because you talked about perspectives, is not um, defending my perception. It's engaging in a conversation about, tell me more about your perspective so I can understand it. Because when you tell me about your perspective, it may inform my perspective in a different way. And out of that may evolve even a better right than existed by either one of us individually. When you work with your management team, did you find that managers were able to learn this skill of time out, look at this from another way. We may continue to do things as we always have, but is it something that is teachable? And did you see some evolvement in your team in this ability to consider another point of view? It's challenging because we're so on task that we want to get stuff done. So taking the time to reflect and do is a bit of a balancing act. And depending on the pressure on the do or the task would determine the amount of resistance or acceptance of taking some time to, and I used to use this term a lot, let's think through this together. 
And that's not my term. It's Margaret Wheatley's term. She talks about conversations being messy. And she says, and I used to get really frustrated with these conversations because I want to get stuff done, right? I'm talking as a manager now, and I'm no D consultant. And I read one of her books. I don't remember what it is. I think it was Better Together. But she said, and remember, conversations are messy. It's the way we think through things together. And when I read that, I went, aha. I had one of those little thought explosions in my head going, okay, I get it. And my patience with taking the time to reflect rose significantly <clears throat> as a result of that. And so now when I deal with these kinds of situations, it's more about trying to find the right balance between reflecting and doing and getting the best results that we can get. Did you find that sometimes that required you to not make a decisive moment occur, but to simply let things settle to some extent? Are there instances where rather than having a decisive moment? Oh, where you decide? Yes, where something has to be decided, you just, there's that expression, let the bull pass. But it's more than that. It's just let it, let settle. It doesn't have to always be. To be a good manager, you don't have to always decide right at that moment. I think it would be fair to characterize my preference for decision-making as a consensus model. And I actually write about this in The Eight Traits. And at the same time, if you overuse consensus, you will basically not get things done. And so particularly in an emergency situation or in a crisis, you need to sometimes decide, period. And I had no problem doing that. It just wasn't my dominant style. We got to the point where we had a decision-making continuum all the way from you tell me to now hear this. And you've probably seen it. And different things or a trial balloon I might come up with. I think this is the greatest idea since sliced bread. What do you think? Let's talk about it. And to me, what that meant, and I'd tell them, and we had the diagram on the wall. So when I was doing, using it, I'd just tell them, this is a trial balloon. That also means I get to decide, but I really want you all to weigh in on it. And we're going to collect your wisdom. I enough that. Could you describe to our listeners and just what that was on the wall that you had and referred to? It was just, I had a little image. It was a, graphic that was a continuum showing five decision-making styles all the way from now hear this, that means I'm deciding this isn't something we're going to debate, to I want you all to decide, you tell me, and I'm going to support what you decide. And the midpoint was a trial balloon, and the trial balloon was, I think this is the answer but I want to collect your wisdom. So what is it? And there are two others that are escaping me right yeah. now, but they're online. They're free. Just print out a copy, tattoo it on everybody's arm. <laughs> yeah. Are you familiar with the Quaker style of decision-making? What comes to my mind is that they would use the expression of, I am not on board with this, but I don't feel strongly enough to stand in the way. Oh, okay. With consensus, the thumbs up, are you familiar with that? Thumbs up, thumbs down, and a sideways thumb. Similar. Which means 
I'll go along with it, but I don't necessarily agree with it. I can live with it. So I guess those are similar. That's great. Yeah, that's really good. If anybody's thumb was down, then we needed to keep talking okay. until we worked through it to get everybody here or here. You're there. And yeah. we did that pretty judiciously. Mm -hmm. I think so often we hesitate to even bring the group to that point if we're afraid that we're going to get the thumbs down. So things don't get decided necessarily. And well, that's a decision too. Working backwards from our previous conversation, we talked about the partnership wheel and you talk about focusing on potential as opposed to the problem statement, which is really, I think, an interesting contrast. I'm not sure that I'm against identifying the problem statement, but I particularly like letting it lead with the potential. And so the partnership wheel is when you talk about the affirmative topic and what kind of culture are we trying to shape? And I thought maybe we could go back to this. And uh, again, if you were coaching managers on how to get to the affirmative, are there some ways, either through query, through imagination, any other techniques that you might suggest for going from problem framework to affirmative framework? Okay. Let me just say one thing about problem framework. I'm not saying you don't have to deal with problems because they're, they're, they do exist. And, and it's like, if you have a, a real problem, you've got to deal with it like a problem. You can't just happy face your way through it. So that's not lost on me. That said, in terms of affirmative topics, I'll tell you one thing I've found that's helpful in developing value statements with groups. And I just, I did this because I was tired of the standard processes that we use in OD to create. Let's do a value statement. Okay, great. What do you want it to read? All this stuff comes out and you're going, yeah, that's right. I could have gotten 20 copies of that in different organizations online. Let's do it a different way. I want every one of you to write down the three things that, let's say, absolutely tick you off about being in a group or in an organization. What really upsets you? And I have them write that down and then report it out. And so let's pretend that, that one of the things that people don't like is, I don't like it when we miss deadlines. Okay. Because people really understand what they don't like or irritates them, right? They really are engaged with that. So once they are familiar and they've written it down, then what you ask them is, okay, great. Now, what's the opposite of your irritant? <laughs> Deliver results on time. Ah, now we have an affirmative topic. So to deliver results on time, if you could imagine us doing that, what would we need to do? Let's brainstorm some ideas on things we can do to ensure that we deliver results on time. And so I guess what I found was sometimes you go to the opposite side of the question to develop the other side of the question. That's a great example. And when I think about 
similar situations I faced, there's also these le- there's these levels that get peeled off. It's like an onion where you peel off the layers. So there's communication. A typical one might be, I don't get enough information from finance or from technology. Yeah. Yeah. Finance is always in the crosshairs. That's a gatekeeper. Yeah. Yeah. And so there, so you learn a lot about the organization processes when you, when you go through that turnaround of going from a problem to a potential. And that's a really encouraging approach. I don't want to miss this again. At the end of our conversation, I thought this was so powerful. When you first, you said language is the culture. Did I get that right? Is that how you understand? It basically goes change the language, change the conversation, change the culture. And the notion behind that is culture is co authored by the decisions we make and our behaviors in organizations and the things that succeed and fail. And we continue doing the things that work, and we generally don't do the things that don't work, even if not consciously. And so you change the language, you pick the language, right? So if I want a clan kind of culture, I'm going to use kind of language around, this is a family environment. You've probably heard that before. Loyalty is important here because look at all those 25-year employee plaques on the wall. And those are artifacts of the culture, correct? And we really like to collaborate here because we want to collect your wisdom. So that's all language domain and themes that if you want to create that kind of culture, you start, especially as a leader, telling stories and using that kind of language that exemplify that kind of culture. So yeah, change the language change conversation, change culture, but you got to know what language you want. So if I want to create a public service culture, then I'm going to start talking about meaningful work and sharing those letters like I talked about last time of people appreciating what we do and talking about our residents and our customers and our stakeholders and how important they are to our community and how each one of them has a strength that they can provide to the quality of life of our community. And I start talking about things that will engender this notion of public service. And why do we do that? Because that's how we create engagement. So important. And I, what I find particularly powerful you made the comment again, maybe you could restate this in your own words, but you said where I once mimicked, which is early on in our careers, we're trying to, we're striving to do those best practices, things that we see that we believe leads to success. But now we're creating with intention. We understand that how we invite people in to to the organization or the words that we use, the language that we use actually is 
shaping that culture, which is one of the traits that we will link this to. That and the second trait, shaping and energizing the culture. Is that the way you want to state it? That the mimicking, which I think is a kind word actually for what we do early in our career, really you, you, you emerged as a mature leader to find yourself creating. Yeah, that's what I mean. I think as leaders, when we come into the organization, most of us in public sector come in as some kind of an analyst or something like that. And we go up through our career ladder and we operate through an inherited set of structures and processes. We didn't create. And so we basically copy that which we inherited. So the question is to evolve from being a participant in the processes that existed to being the creator of something that will enhance and make things better. And in order to do that, we have to create ourselves and grow ourselves so that we can actually, and I think I used this metaphor before, but if you imagine a stage play so that we can be on the stage performing and at the same time in the balcony looking back at the performance saying this performance is going well and it would be really good if we did x mm -hmm. when i first started in my role i was just one of the performers so you mm -hmm. have to think outside of yourself and we can do that as we develop and have experience we gain wisdom and uh, and perspectives that you don't have early in your career. What I found so provocative about this was this link to this other area, which surprised me when you brought it up. It's the entrances and the exits. It's the beginnings oh. and the, that we find ourselves in places of transition and I think that only you, from your unique experience and development around in the OD area, are able to frame it like this. I have never heard anyone frame it like this before, Ray. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about how this came to you and how you... I'm trying to imagine, I have always, and I think we all talk about this in the HR world. We talk about how important onboarding is. We talk about how important exits are. But what you're talking about is in the organization itself. Sometimes we stop, I think you're saying this, we stop important initiatives. They just stop cold and we move on and the staff are left. Like what happened to that? Or somebody leaves and an initiative stops. And we're not, I'm going to let you fill in the, this idea of the importance of intention around beginnings and endings. It, I wasn't familiar with Bridges material when I was a manager. And I wish I had that. I, I mean, somebody put it in front of me and I just looked at it, moved on to the next task. You got to do, you can't do it. I keep doing. So when I was 
had moved on into the consulting practice, I kept seeing and hearing and or because with this as well as I do, probably much better. When you're the city manager, you got this bag of city manager on your back and people aren't going to tell you everything you need to hear. When you're a consultant, they're going to tell you everything you don't want to hear and more. And you get to hear it all and you go, what? I would have never heard that as a city manager. So I kept hearing this stuff about frustration with these different initiatives and these different organizations. And I got caught up into the notion that the initiatives were good, but they were failing. And they were failing in the system, not in the, the leadership of the group that was leading was making a good call. It just wasn't getting done. And so I revisited Bill Bridges' material on managing transitions because that's what we're talking about here, is a transition from this reality to the new reality that you're trying to create. And so Bridges frames it as endings, <clears throat> the neutral zone, and the new beginning. And he says that the endings on any initiative, so like if you're going to implement a CRM program, you can say, we're going to implement on January 1, 2024, a new CRM program that's the answer to everything we've had a problem with the old CRM program. Great. We're going to do all of it. The new beginning then is January, right? But that whole system is a whole new system that people don't necessarily understand, know how to use, or we want to use, may even resist it. And so Bridges says that we go through this neutral zone, which is a, the neutral zone is a psychological reorientation to the new beginning. And you have to let go of the ending in order to get to the new beginning. And so it's like crossing a river. You go from one shore to the other, but you have to cross the river and the rapids and the currents may be significant, level five, but you still have to get across the river and that takes time for people to go through that process. So implementing change is all about managing transitions. The change itself is pretty simple from a leadership standpoint. We're going to do X on this date. Great. And then we go off and do whatever it is we want to do. The new beginning starts. But there's this whole orientation, and that's why you've heard many people say when big changes occurs, whether it's a reorganization, somebody leaving the organization, it's a new director, whatever it is, there is a marked decrease in productivity and focus as people try to come to grips with this new reality. It takes people time. And so what do you have this awareness as a leader? And we did talk about this a little bit last time, changing the culture. This is it primarily an element of time that there is allowing allowance for that, that there is in that space, not a, you will do this or you're off the bus. <laughs> yeah, there is that. I studied this question when I wrote my thesis on managing strategic change. And the question was, what's the tipping point, right? Where a, a, an initiative can become successful. And assuming Malcolm Gladwell is right, he says it's about 25%. So you have to get about 25% of the people 
enrolled in the change to help move it along because it's just like the bell-shaped curve, right? You got to move everything over this way. And there will always be resistors. Some people never want to change. They're comfortable doing what they do. And if it's not critical, maybe that's okay. But most of today, the world environment demands that we evolve and change to adapt to a new future. And so you got to get at least a quarter of the people headed in the right direction and hope you can grow it from there. Yeah. I wondered, as I was listening to this, to our earlier conversation, I began to think about where there might be some intersections with mental health in the organization, because we've been through, through the pandemic in particular, what a time. And so whatever it is that we can learn from this transition and giving it time, I think it's important here to to say it doesn't mean that the organization is failing, we can't recruit, or we're having difficulty keeping people. This is an issue I hear in some organizations. It's not that you're on, the onboarding might be off. It, It may be that we are all struggling to some extent with transitions. And so it, uh, I think it's just worth noting that the discussions around mental health at all levels of the organization, attention to wellness is something that figures in here from a leadership and developing good teams that there has to be some attention to mental health and and that's let's just change the language there attention to transition attention to the needs of transition each individual in terms of their engagement let's just reform react to what you said how's that yes i like that uh you can't manage a transition until you know where the new beginning is. So what's the new beginning? It's the new workplace. People don't know. I don't know. I hear a lot about it. I can tell you that in the organizations I've been around recently and the people I've talked with, this whole issue of who can work hybrid and who can't is a big issue. So for example, There's a lot of discussion about hybrid work, right? Mm -hmm. Well, are policemen going to be able to work hybrid? No. How about firefighters? No. Who can work hybrid? And so now we have developed through this process and this work structure, different classes of jobs that when people joined the system didn't exist. And so all this new stuff is forming a new organization design that's still evolving and unknown. That will be the new beginning. And that's going to take a while. And so people are going to have trouble transitioning to this new beginning when it's unclear what the new beginning is. And so it's a time of turbulence in systems. So that's one thought I have about it. 
in terms of mental health, we, we've always considered employee well-being, which is more than mental health. It's a lot of different things important. And that's why we have EAP programs. And that's why we referred people to them. And I think some of the best things we ever did was when we had people having addiction issues, particularly with alcohol, we, we had every right to terminate them. And in all instances, except one, we reached an agreement with them to go through rehab. And if they got through rehab successfully, they could come back to work. And as long as they stayed clean and sober, they could continue working. And I think we had six or seven instances that I recall that I may have been involved with in terms of saying, yeah, let's do that, where we succeeded at that. Because, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why people get addicted, but masking their pain is one of them. And uh, so mental health has always been an issue. I worry about the paramedics and the uh, police officers because some of the stuff they see you can't unsee and it's pretty gruesome and so we have programs of course in local government to help them deal with that we have people that we knew had some mental health issues they went away and dealt with it and they came back to work for the very fruitful careers so it's just acknowledging that it's another plank in supporting employee well-being in my mind. Did you evolve around this? Because I remember starting my career and being coached to really separate work from my business life. In fact, I was, I was told like you have to compartmentalize was the word. Separate work from your, you mean your work, home? Family? My home life, yes, from oh. compartmentalize so that here you are at work, you check out all those problems, you come in and you do your work and then you go home and then you're back into those other problems. And somewhere along the line, we have evolved to understand that there is a, when we check out, when we come into work, there's a part of us that's, that we're not bringing to the work that is perhaps needed or valued. And that could be the empathy part. That could be the understanding part. That could be something that is important for our human relations, perhaps. Do you have a sense of, of that evolving over the time of managing in your experience? Uh, yeah, I do. I, I mean, at some level, I probably knew it because I remember when I was an intern in my first job, I won't name the city, but the secretary, and that's what she was called, got pregnant and she lost her job as a result of that. And I thought that was totally unfair. I, I didn't like it and it bothered me a lot. It still bothers me to this day. That could have ever happened because she wasn't sick. She was giving life to a child right now as an adult, hopefully productive in society. Mm -hmm. But that was the first kind of like, whoa, what are these rules 
that business operates under. I don't like that rule. And then I can remember in Burbank where we were, we, our fire chief was pretty, pretty smart guy. He brought in a medical director to train our paramedics to ensure that they were trained, a, a doctor. And I went to some of their sessions and they were talking about dealing with trauma and the buildup of dealing with trauma and how to manage that so it doesn't build up. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's right. That's really a good thing to do. And then I thought, all of us bring who we are to work. All of us bring our experiences to work. And so when we bring somebody into the work environment or have somebody in the work environment, we have all those experiences to deal with. And we can't, I can't compartmentalize it. If I had a difficult time with, say, my daughter, our daughter, or Denise and I had had some disagreement, I don't just flip a light switch and it goes away. I got it. It's in me. It's processing. When will it affect how I deal with other people? I try not, but I don't think most of us can do that. We have, yeah, we are who we are. Yeah. Yep. I think the, the professionals coming up in the field are much more sensitive to this idea that we don't know where a person's been from the time they walk in that door in the morning. And I appreciate that so much. And I think this kind of leads into another a metaphor. What? that Go ahead. But at the same time, I don't, this is another example of, it's a strength of an organization to deal with that but if it gets overdone and overemphasized and it becomes the focus of everything about which the organization is doing, that's not help either. Because now you've got, I don't know what you've got, but you Do you have an impact on the whole organization? Yeah, you can't do that. I mean, there is a line that needs to be drawn at some point yeah. where, yeah, 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 but you're here to be a professional. You're a trained professional. We want you to be a professional. If we need to help you with this, we're going to do that. But if they start coming to work drunk, we can't allow that. Or if they start coming to work angry and yeah, acting out, you can't tolerate that. You got to help them deal with it or you have to deal with it. Anyway, I just want it's No, I think that's important. It's probably more of an HR discussion, but it's also true that in an organization, there is an impact on everyone. So everything that you come into that front door with is requires some self-awareness of how that's impacting others. Right. Yeah. And I, so I, I want to then revisit your metaphor of, of the jazz band, or you might have some other bands that you think about. I came, you talked about the managers being the baseline for that band. And I really love this because I think, you know, you can visit a jazz band on any particular day and hear something different. They're in a different mode or they're, they're improvising in a different way. And so I'd like to return to that a little bit because I think that the role of a manager and in terms of how, and I'm going to just look at my notes here, you said, when I see an organization, I see a score. And so I take that to mean, and you can explain this more fully, that you read, you, 
read the situation when you walk into it, whether it's the room and an important meeting or it's something else that's occurring that day. You are learning to attune your part, attune your role to, I'm thinking you're, what you hear or what, what you feel. I think this is hugely important for managers. It goes much beyond the sort of rational approach of this is what we have to achieve tonight and I have it. I have it laid out. This is the expectations. Managers do have to be infinitely flexible, if that's the right word, or attuned, I think is the word I would use. How would you describe your use of that metaphor and how a manager? Probably we ought to talk about what a score is. It's a music score. Okay. With notes and all of that kind of stuff. It's not the game score. So that's just to lay a little foundation. It's like a piece of music that you put on a music stand and play it. And you go into the room, you look at the music score, and you see the various, the tempo, the various parts you play, what sound they are trying to achieve. You may even know the background of the story, the music. Most music has a background. I was, I like Stevie Nicks. And so I was like reading a little bit about some of her music and most of her music, she's, most of it's written as a result of her own life experiences. So there's always something there behind the notes. So you do have to go in and depending on the situation, as you say, attune yourself to what's going on. And um, so that's basically it. It's going to ebb and flow. Conversation is going to have a tempo. And I believe, I believe you said this, you want to start where the group is. And if, if you don't figure out where the group is, you're liable to just run right over the top of the group if you're hosting the meeting. And you may get done what you want to get done, but there may be a lot of stuff that's left undone as a result of your meeting. So it's that kind of thing where you go in and attune to where the group is. And you may end up not doing one thing that you thought you were going to do, but you may do the most important thing mm -hmm. that needs to be done as a result of it. So let's see, I was trying to recall this, this one. It, when it comes to me, I'll bring it up. Uh, you oh, know. I remember. <laughs> so one of the things I coach people, leaders with, is when you're talking with someone else, when you're observing a room, if people start the conversation with, I think, you're dealing with logic and rational. If they start with feel, I feel like this ain't fair, that kind of language, you're dealing with emotion. And if you're going to deal with emotion, and if there's emotion in the room, 
you need to like acknowledge it because if you run over, it doesn't make the emotion goes away. It only amplifies the frustration that these people may be feeling. And so you need to take the time to at least acknowledge the feeling and see if anything else needs to be said about it before you go on to the logic of getting your task done, whatever that may have been. I love this segue uh, to what you said about the first trait. And we will share with listeners the summary of the traits that you have developed to lead and build great teams. But your first trait is to stay on course. But the stay on course doesn't mean ABC like in a linear way. Set the course. You, that's what's the preferred outcome, right? Mm-hmm. That stay on course was specific because the first time I wrote it, I wrote, set the course and stay the course. And the more I wrestled with it, I was like, no, there's no the course. On course, you make course adjustments. Always make course adjustments. Staying on course is not inflexible. It's absolutely flexible because that's how we get things done. The harder you push on people, the more they're going to push back. And so set the course. I want to achieve this is the desired outcome, whatever result. And the course, I think, is this way. But if we need to go over here like this, okay. There's a reason why we're going over there. And if it informs setting a different outcome that's better, okay, we can do that too. It's just that I find that a lot of places these days, in particular, a lot of organizations, and I'm going to use a private sector example. I hope people understand if you use this, but they must have missed their strategy classes in their MBA because one of the things a strategy prof is going to tell you is, hey, Get clear about what your mission is and the business you're in and stay in the business you're in and achieve your mission. But when you get caught up in all these other things um, without diving into what they are, I think everybody knows some of the other things. If you look at Bud Light or now what Target's going through and maybe Kohl's a little bit and even Chick-fil-A, what business are they in? So I ask the same thing of local governments. If I were a city manager now, one of the things I would be doing if we were dealing with some of those issues, and Carlsbad just did actually recently deal with some of those issues, I would have been asking the council, what business are we in? We're in the business of providing public safety, public works, and community services to enhance the quality of life for people in this community. I always thought it was better for some of the social sector stuff to be dealt with separately from local governments. Mm -hmm. We're not well equipped to deal with that because councils broker values differences, right? But the value differences that are being wrestled with today in a national way are not inherently the mission of local government. And so we lose our path. If you're all things to all people, you're nothing to anyone. Yeah. I think this is a topic that does have some nuance in it. The point is very well taken that by by focusing on what your business is, I think 
you're going to be able to navigate through the polarization of issues. Uh, and even if you wanted to, even let's say you're a council, let's go back to my point about the council. Okay, council, what do you want to do about this? And what power do you have to deal with some of this stuff, like whether it's transgender or things like that? You, you, you don't have any power over that. Yeah. You could make a decision and it doesn't matter. So why deal with it? You have nothing to gain mm -hmm. from a city standpoint, from a city government standpoint, from a local government standpoint. The best wisdom that I've received from managers who have been around the block was that you have to have your own moral standpoint. You begin with that. and you No question. And I think that if you let that lead you with some integrity, you're not going to agree with everything that goes on at the election body level, but you're going to be grounded first and foremost in your own value system. And that'll take you where you need to go. Yeah, I was particularly backing into this discussion about when to speak out, but yes, I was particularly taken with that because I thought, wow, what a great conversation to have because, um, can I go on about that a little yes, bit? Yes, I would love that. Okay. So when to speak out, right? It's the ongoing conversation a manager or anybody has with themselves every day. It's not a new conversation. And so it's guided by one's moral principles and our professional ethics as a general rule. So having said that, context matters. And speaking out depends on the context. So, for example, I'm going to put my city manager's hat on. <laughs> Not that I'll do that again, but anyway. If I had some issue with an elected, which I thought was a legal issue, the first thing I do is check in with my city attorney. And the city manager in California doesn't hire the city attorney. The city council does. So it's he or she is co the parallel and check to make sure I'm just not overreacting to something. But if I think something illegal is going on, and I did have this one time in my career where I thought an elected was doing something illegal and I took the proper steps to deal with it. And it turned out in the final analysis after investigation, that person wasn't, but the guy he was working with was. <laughs> And the guy went to jail. That was the one instance. So I, I informed the mayor that at the appropriate time, once I knew there was actually something happening, so that he would know. And then that was it. But let's pretend it's not a legal issue. Let's pretend that it's just your basic everyday work. It's your stuff that's going on in your community and when to speak out. And the question is, isn't, are you going to speak out? Because you probably are. And you should be driven by your moral principles, your professional ethics, your professional standards, whatever they are for each of us individually. But how do you do that? One of the most powerful ways is professional recommendations. That's what we do. We make professional recommendations. And those come in the form of staff reports to council. And as I said last time, we largely get 
99% of our professional recommendations adopted by the city council. It's a phenomenal hit rate. Uh, and that's just a testament to how good we are. So I don't want to focus on when the council says something, no on something that we said they should do, unless it's illegal, in which case that will be a problem. I might also speak out one-on-one. -on -one. I might ask an elected if they if I couldn't spend some time with them and talk with them about this stuff, I met with every elected at least once a week, one-on-one, -on -one, just to talk with them. And I had a ground rule. This is part of trait five, ground rules with electeds. Because ground rules work both ways, with the electeds and both with the staff. But one of my elected ground rules was, and I told them this, I said, you can talk to me about anything you want. And I will listen. And if you want me to observe and comment, I will comment in all candor and honesty. But I will not become your messenger to your colleagues. That's up to you. Yeah. And I'll be dang, did they ever come talk to me? Because here's what we don't always understand as, as staff is these people come into this with very good intentions usually. And they're, they want to be competent and successful too. But who are they going to talk to? If they talk to their colleagues, their colleagues are always positioning just like they are. If they talk to their campaign committee is always positioning. And so not only would I be able to listen to them, I could help them understand with a great, greater clarity and depth the framework that they might be dealing with at the city just so they could think it through. So we'd think it through together and then they could do whatever they want. So one-on-one. -on -one. The other thing would be another forum for speaking out is coaching and developing. Like I shared, Jacob, to the Alliance for Innovation for Local Governments Transforming Local Government Conference. And just let them hear what other people are doing. But our role is a partnership role. And so as the managers, we need to be really good, competent, and professional at implementing and executing effectively with political neutrality, that which the council wants. And so our fundamental values, our transcendent values will shape what we do. They'll help us decide. And if the council ever does something that is so egregious that we just can't stand it, then for me, the choice was always, then I must go. I don't need to fight with them. If this community and it's legal and they're doing what they're doing, I am no longer a fit and I'm going to choose to go, period. And that's the way I dealt with it in terms of speaking out. Because I thought it was a great question. Because this is the question today. Because the way it doesn't work is when we have professionals politicize their positions. And we can see plenty of validated reports of people doing that now, and it really doesn't help Yeah. if we politicize it. Like one of the questions city managers often get asked, particularly as they're beginning to get near a retirement, is, oh, are you going to run for office? I got asked that a lot before I retired from the city and after I left. And I said, no, that wasn't, that's not how I'm wired. I know I'm 
I gave 34 years of Tuesday nights missing NCIS going to council meetings. <laughs> I think George Washington was, at least it was asserted or written somewhere, that George Washington said of the administrative state that the people that occupy those positions must be of superb character. There you go. Okay. That's beautiful. They, they, they don't need to be politicians. Oh, the in-trade six. I think if we touch on that, the traits of trusting others and intentionally build healthy relationships. You say, choose civility and collaboration over rudeness and division. And uh, wow, do I see managers talk about this, and this is what contributes to their burnout. But if you could speak a little bit more about addressing the conflicts internally, helping team members you say here, this trait is really about helping team members to collaborate, ensuring that they're building healthy and trusting professional relationships. So it cuts, what, what this reminds me of, Ray, is this idea that when, the, when you focus on the healthy relationships internally, you're more likely to have those healthy relationships externally. You have more to offer. Bingo. Yeah. That's it. And most of us haven't been taught how to create healthy, trusting relationships. We just do what we do. And uh, so one of the things in my workshop that I do on this stuff yeah. is one of the first activities I have them do is I break them out into groups of three, four, five people, hardly ever four. I don't like even numbers, but three to five subgroups. And I say, I want you to get the five, I want you to develop the five qualities or characteristics that you want in a healthy, trusting, professional relationship. And um, I do that with the notion that Leonardo da Vinci was allegedly said this, begin with the end of mind. So if you don't know what the end of mind is, where you're trying to get the preferred outcome, it's a little harder to create it. It's like you were talking about in transitions, we have this new work environment. We don't exactly know what it looks like. And people are transitioning and they're having trouble with the transition because they don't know what it looks like. Mm -hmm. That's true with relationships too. So what do you want in a healthy, trusting relationship? So you get the qualities up there in front of people. So they have in front of them. And then you can start working on teaching them how to do that because Healthy relations and conflict management are different sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Most people don't like to hear that, but a healthy relationship is built on being able to manage conflict effectively. You can't, you're going to have conflict. And, and so until you have some pretty good skills at managing conflict, as opposed to Differences is more in a collaborative environment. But if you have real conflict, especially interpersonal conflict, you better have a way, a technique to do it. And so the one tool that I teach people that's really easy, because there's some pretty sophisticated conflict resolution processes, right? Mm -hmm. But one, I'll tell you two of them. One of them is when people propose something, for example, I learned this when I was the chief negotiator in Burbank. And initially, I would like just oppose it. 
because I didn't have the skill to understand what to do. So I read up all about conflict resolution. And the piece I took away from this book, I still have it by this guy named Filey. And it was, when people propose something, ask them what problem they're solving. What problem were we solving with that? And then have a conversation around what the problem is. Because they're proposing their solution to a problem, which may be a problem you have you didn't even know you have. And that discussion will either help you come up with a better solution. Maybe that is a solution if it's a problem. But nonetheless, what problem does that solve? So it's a pretty simple one. Okay, here's the other one. Maybe it's the whole thing of perception, intention, impact. Nancy, it's my perception that I somehow upset you. That isn't my intention, but I sense the impact is you're withdrawing away from me as a result of that. And could you help me understand what's going on? Notice the first thing I didn't do was point a finger at you. Okay. I brought it from my perspective and my perception. I disclosed my intention and I asked for some help on the impact. Yeah. And then you just have to be willing to wait right. until something's said. Mm -hmm. And that's sometimes the hard It's hard to do that. It sounds easy. Yeah. But it's hard to do. Yeah. What's that term jumping the tracks? That's when we move over from the rational to the irrational and that is <laughs> yeah come back but i hadn't heard that but yeah that's true and you better so, hope there's not three or four more tracks over there a quote yeah that can happen too over time but i think that uh, what you describe is a it's really helpful in the beginning stages where you're thinking like what's going on here i might be getting triggered this might be something that's gonna i don't want to hear let me rely on my first set, which is, this is what I intended. Right. And your perception. In my perception. Yeah. And mine's 100% right. And so is yours. Yeah. I have a button in my office downstairs. It says, listen to girls. And I think it comes <laughs> from this idea of not being heard, but just the act of saying, I'm listening. I want to know what you think is like, you're going to clear out 90% of the grievance right there. Yeah, that's a good one. Very powerful. We males tend to want to try and fix things. I've had a little bit of advantage because I was raised by three strong women. But, yeah, it's um, a big advantage, right? <laughs> my grandmother, my aunt, and my mother, so. Oh, that's wonderful. I hope we do come back when your book is moving into a place where you can tell people where they can get it, and we can continue the, the discussion on some of these traits. But uh, I just want to thank you for being a part of this. I think you're doing really interesting and important work, and I'm not sure what motivated you to do it, but it's really nice that you are. And I do think it is a, a huge community-building activity at some level. Yeah. And I, I, again, I don't exactly know what lightning bolt struck you. <laughs> But it was a good one. I've always loved sort of the behind the scenes work. And as I thought about this last phase of my career, 
I wanted to do the thing that I enjoy the most, which is having those conversations. And I did see need for building community. And I think that the growth and development that you talk about in your work is what also motivates me. I love this idea of learning from each other. Mm -hmm. Very willing to share what I know. And I get very excited to talk with those in the field of public administration that are doing really interesting, innovative things. That's what interests me the most is the innovation, just this coming up with some ideas of approaching the challenges. I just think the challenges are great. We didn't talk this time so much about the vocation of public service, but I think at root, that's what, what's really operating here in your career and mine yeah. as well, and so no, many others. True. No, that's true. I agree with that. Public service. A lot of people don't realize that's why they got in it, but that's okay. Yeah. They're in it. Well, that's good. So I hope you get a bunch of sponsors that make you wealthier than Bill Gates. <laughs> but I appreciate the sentiment. <laughs> so, okay. You have a good week. Yeah, you take care. Bye-bye.